Please, please, this morning to the book of John, chapter 4. The fourth gospel, the book of John, chapter 4. A number of weeks ago, I gave a Bible to one of the business owners in our community and encouraged him to begin to read it. And last night I saw him. And it was so coincidental that he said, you know, I've just been reading John chapter 4. And, you know, when you give a Bible, you don't, don't know if people are going to read it or not. You know, or you hope they are. And he started to tell me the story of John chapter 4. He just took me back. He was quoting some sections almost word for word. And he said that I gave him the Life Application Bible, which we try to get into everybody's hands. And he says, do you have to always read the bottom as well as the top? I said, no, just read the bottom when you need to. So he was reading the scriptures and the commentary at the bottom. Well, when you open the Bible, boy, it brings you into proximity to God. It really does. Today we're in John chapter 4, verse 1. We're talking to you this morning about Jesus mentoring his disciples. And as we go through these passages this morning, you'll see the rationale uh, that Jesus was trying to project to his disciples. Uh, therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made him baptize more disciples than John, Though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. For a period of time, the ministry of John the Baptist and the ministry of Jesus were parallel one to another. And uh, I guess somebody was keeping records at this particular time, at least in their head maybe. And uh, it was discovered that Jesus' disciples were baptizing a lot more people than John the Baptist's disciples and, uh, and so, therefore, uh, Jesus, uh, that creates all kinds of things, sometimes negative things. And so, what happened here in verse number three, Jesus left the area and he departed, went up to Galilee. Verse number four is one of the most interesting and challenging verses to me. It says, but he need, needed to go through Samaria. You know, there are things in our life that we need to do. They're not convenient they're not easy to do. This wasn't convenient or easy for Jesus to do this. But he said, listen, I just have to do this. I have to go right through Samaria. And for those of you who have read this passage of Scripture before, you know that the Jews just didn't do that. Uh, they t kind of took a, a roundabout way around Samaria. They didn't want to be afflicted or infected with the Samaritans. But Jesus said, listen, I've got to do this. Verse 5 says, So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there, and Jesus therefore being wearied. I've underlined the word wearied because remember last week we talked from John chapter 1 and we talked about the deity of Jesus and the humanity of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus. Well, in verse number 1 here, in verse 4, the, the scripture says the Lord knew. That refers to his deity. God knows all things. We know that. He's all-knowing. We don't understand that, but we believe it. We believe that God knows the thoughts and the intents of our heart and every single thought that traces through our mind, God knows. Uh, and so, therefore, we stand back in awe and we say, man, Jesus really is God. Uh, but here we find he's not in addition to God, he's also man. Remember John chapter 1, verse 14 says, The Word became flesh 
and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And here we have an illustration of that. Jesus has had a long day's journey, and he's tired. And so he comes to the well and leans up against the well, and the Bible says it's the sixth hour. That means it's noontime. You can't believe how hot it is over there. And then all of a sudden, here comes this woman of Samaria to draw water. And Jesus spoke to her and said, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Now, that's interesting. And we'll come back there. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, how is it that you being a Jew ask a drink from a Samaritan woman? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus here is mentoring his disciples. He said, listen, this has to stop. This feeling of supremacy that you have, this feeling of superiority better than thou, it's got to end and it's going to end right here in the territory of Samaria. It says, listen, the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God, and in my Bible I've underlined the gift of God and I put an arrow into the margin and I wrote Jesus. He is the gift of God. Jesus here is God's gift to this lady at the well. He said, if you knew the gift of God and who it, and who it, it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to, her, said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Uh, where then do you get that living water? Uh, he, she said, you've come unprepared. Are you greater than your father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, referring to the water from the well. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Jesus said, I have water to give you that is not like this. You know, there's nothing as good as water when you're thirsty, isn't it? I mean, you just keep drinking. And all of a sudden, your thirst is gone. It quenches your thirst. Jesus said, I've got something better than that. I have some water. And if you'll take a big drink of that, you won't thirst again. That means you'll be completely satisfied. The Bible says we are complete in Christ. Uh, it's the lasting water that uh, continually quenches our thirst and takes us all and gives us everlasting life. And you know, when you have everlasting life, uh, your life does change. It really does. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. She, she didn't get it. She kept thinking about the water that she needed to take home. And she says, Boy, I want to get this water that you have because I'm tired of this trip to the well. Jesus does something here and he kind of breaks out of context here and he says to her, go call your husband and come here. And he changes the whole direction of everything and he brings up her past. And she is so amazed that he knows about her past. That takes us back to the deity of Christ. Jesus doesn't want to take her into the future until she deals with her past. Every person has to deal with their past. And the very best place to deal with your past is at the foot of the cross. Bring it there and give it to Christ and then leave it there as we were singing, you know. Leave your burdens there. Leave your past there. Well, 
Uh, John the Baptist had burst on the scene and he had created tons of interest in spiritual things. If you read his story, it's like, wow. Uh, there had been no prophet in Israel for an awful long time and John the Baptist was a breath of fresh air. He was seemingly was afraid of no one. But uh, there was so much enthusiasm with John's preaching and he became so popular. But now, at the beginning of this chapter, John the Baptist is playing second fiddle. And you know it's hard to play second fiddle after you've played first fiddle. It really is. John the Baptist was all the news and all the headlines, but now Jesus and his disciples was taking uh, preeminence. We see here in John chapter 4, verse 1, that our Lord's deity shines through. Uh, he knows her future. Uh, he brought up her past and she, he said to her in verse 16, go call your husband. And the woman said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have said, well, I have no husband for you have had five husbands. And the one whom you now have is not your husband, in that you spoke truly. And so Jesus demonstrates throughout the book this idea of his omniscience, his deity. He knows all things. That's the first thing we see in this book, or in this chapter. The second thing we see is his desire for unity. Uh, you know, ministry is a wonderful thing, but sometimes it creates competition. Uh, this ministry against that ministry, maybe this church against that church, and people start to cheer on their church. And, uh, and sometimes it moves from something maybe that's supposed to be healthy to something that's unhealthy. And so John the Baptist had warned his disciples uh, in the previous chapter, this is what he said, he must increase, but I must decrease. And I'm sure his disciples had a hard time with that because they liked to be the people that everybody was talking about. And so that was happening. John the Baptist was fading back in out of the limelight. Jesus and his disciples were taking their place. Somebody was keeping account of the baptismal records. But the Bible says here cleanly, uh, clearly in verse number two that Jesus himself did not baptize. Why didn't he do that? I guess the reason why is because if they had any kind of documentation for baptism back in that day, I don't know if they did. And uh, Jesus signed one of them. It would be pretty valuable, wouldn't it? He said, I'm not getting into that. I'll just let my disciples baptize. Uh, the Apostle Paul adopted the same uh, principle. Uh, he implemented this. Remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17, he said, Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. I don't want to put my name on any baptismal certificate either, because people might put it in a museum or something, start to worship it. Uh, now, in order to squelch this friction, Jesus moves his base of operation. He heads north. We'll just leave that territory to John the Baptist. He's doing a good work. I don't want to... Let's just not bump up against each other. Israel, as you know, is a very uh, compact country. It's only about 120 miles long, if you can visualize that. When you get there, some of you have been there, and when you get there, they take you on a tour. It's that you just like that, you're in the north of the country and you turn around and just like that, you're in the south of the country. But it basically had three states, Galilee, Samaria and Judea. And so Jesus is down here ministering in Judea and he sets, he says, listen, I want to get up there to Galilee, but I'm going to go straight through Samaria. And he comes to the well. The well was kind of the social gathering place at that time. They didn't have much kind of equivalent to the Dairy Queen here we have in Finleyville. I rode by there the other night. It looked like the whole town was there. 
or the Friday evening car cruise down at Mineral Beach. They even had more. Yeah, a place where people go to hang out and have a good time. Well, Jesus was weary. He was tired. Uh, but he was doing something very powerful here. He was uh, mentoring his disciples. And what he was doing, he was breaking down barriers. And in order for the gospel to clearly go out, we have to break down a lot of barriers. We have to challenge a lot of tradition. And that's what he did. He challenged the barrier of tradition and pride. You see, the Jews, uh, they always looked down upon the Samaritans. They were better than them, they thought. And this had existed for at least 400 years. And can you imagine every generation teaching the next generation, listen, we just don't hang out with the Samaritans. We're better than them. Uh, now, we expect Jesus to transcend that because he's God. And, and we know that God has created all of humanity. And so Jesus had to, like, teach them this. That, listen, all people are precious in the sight of God. But it's interesting that in verse number eight, look there with me, please. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. It's interesting that as they walked with Jesus, their attitude began to change, too, because this was unordinary that a Jew would go into a Samaritan town to buy food from them. You know, when you travel with Jesus, you change. Let's read it. When you travel with Jesus, you change. You know, you can travel with the church and never change. You can come to all the services and you can go through the routine of things and you can go to uh, this group and that group and uh, you probably won't change very much. But you cannot travel with Jesus without change. When you travel with the Lord, you change because change is inevitable. Let me give you a few scriptures. You might want to write them down. Luke 6.40 says this. Who... For everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher. And that's what Jesus was doing with his disciples. He was teaching them by his example. Isn't that the best way to learn? Does he see it in action? Uh, I love 2 Corinthians 3.18. It's a, let's uh, look at it up here on our screen this morning. 2 Corinthians. Could we get that on the screen? 2 Corinthians. Chapter 3. Let's read it together. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Now, this is Paul saying, all of us who are believers, those are the ones with unveiled face. When we come to Christ, the veil is lifted and we see the world as it really is. Uh, we are beholding as in a mirror. How many people here looked in the mirror this morning? Would you raise your hand? Scary sight, wasn't it? Ooh, man, I tell you. Uh, but we did. We looked in the mirror and we looked at it very closely. And so here, Paul is kind of like using an analogy. Like you're looking in a mirror, but in this case, you're looking up close and personal to the glory of the Lord. You're spending time with God. And you are being, what's that next word? Transformed, changed. It's the Greek word metamorpho, which means change from the inside out. You know, it's so easy to conform to Christian peer pressure. You know, this Christian believes this, and so therefore you kind of like snuggle up and say, okay, I'll, I'll go along with that, but my heart's not in it. 
the Bible says here that when you get up close to the Lord, He changes you automatically into the same image or profile of Christ. You begin to be more like the Lord. You really do. And after ten years, somebody says, well, you know, Bill's not the person they used to be. Or Mary, certainly, she's completely changed. And it happened so slowly almost, but it happened so awesomely. Uh, from glory to glory, that just means from one level of change to the next. Just as by the Spirit of the Lord, it's God's Spirit that makes the change. And so he challenged it. These people began to change in his presence and they weren't afraid to go in and buy uh, in this town that they would have never gone into before. He challenged also prejudice to the barrier of race. She said when she met the Lord, I am a Samaritan. Uh, these people were only partial Jews, the Samaritans. Their bloodline was not pure. So... Strike one. Another thing he challenged was the barrier of gender. She was a woman. You know, as I was doing some reading for this message, I was appalled to really uh, learn or relearn their attitude toward women back during that time. It was horrific. It was actually so vulgar that I would be almost ashamed to read to you in the church their attitude toward women. Uh, but I want you to always know that it was Jesus who really raised the level, the status, and put women in their proper perspective. He was the great liberator. When you study how women had an impact on his ministry and his on theirs. Uh, Jesus was a rabbi. They were not allowed to look at a woman in public or even uh, to speak to them. And so here Jesus said, listen, I'm a rabbi and I'm going to speak to this woman. And so he challenged the barrier of gender. Uh, women at that time were just kind of left off into the corner and ignored and put down. Uh, Jesus said, not for me. Uh, the next thing he challenged was the barrier of the extremely needy person. You know, every person's life has value. You know that? And I know that in life we look around and we say, boy, that person is hopeless, man. They're like, uh, they've been way past three strikes, you're out. There's no hope for them. And it's so easy for us to give up on people, but Jesus didn't give up on her. I'll tell you, if there was a loser in that town, it was this, this woman right here. Uh, how do we know that? Well, she was at the well at noon. And this was unordinary because... People came at night. It was too hot to go get water at noon. Uh, she was considered, I think, the irreparable person. The person who had a track record that was filled with failure. Uh, what was the lesson that Jesus was trying to get his disciples to see here? Well, he was trying to get them to see that uh, no one is beyond the grace of God. There is no such thing as an irreparable person. And he was trying to change their minds so that they could see the world through his eyes. And this is something that I pray almost every day. Lord, help me to see the world through your eyes, not mine. I know what the world looks through, like through my eyes. And I know that's not the real thing. And so, Lord, I pray, Philippians 2.5, let this attitude be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Help me to see the world through your word. 
from your perspective. And that's, I think that's what Jesus was trying to get over. Uh, and so, out of nowhere, he brings up her past. Why does he do that? It just seems out of context here. You know, they have this great conversation going on about the living, uh, about this water. And all of a sudden, he says, now listen, go call your husband. And boy, this kind of strikes fear into her heart. He causes her to see herself and face her past. Why? Because she couldn't enjoy living water without living in sin. And so she had to come to grips with who she really was on the inside. Now, we don't know who she really was. And I'd like to give her a lot of benefit of the doubt. Because, you know, a lot of marriages can explode. Multiple marriages can explode. And sometimes... The person is just a victim of circumstances. Sometimes they just get involved with the wrong person. And they are, relatively speaking, just innocent in the whole situation. I don't know if that was her case. uh, But uh, I do know one thing. There certainly was a lot of pain in her life. And... uh, And Jesus here said, remember in Luke chapter 5, verse 32, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. It could have been addiction. It could have been anything. But for her, her problem was broken relationships. You know, there are really two revelations in the Christian life. First of all, there's the revelation of God. What can God do? And here, here we are seeing that Jesus, who was God, was showing to his disciples what he could do. Uh, He knew what was going on in these people's minds. He was God. The next revelation is the revelation of ourself. And, you know, a lot of times those two things have to come together in order for a person to go forward in the spiritual life. They They have to look into their heart and analyze who they are. And, you know, conviction is a good thing. And oftentimes people come to church and they sit in the pew and they say, you know, I've I got to look in my heart. And when you come to church, God convicts you of something, usually. Uh, you usually don't get out to the parking lot or get to your car without God, like, knocking on your door, kind of trying to get you to wake up in at least some area of your life. And that's a good thing because, because we never change, do we? Unless it's brought to the forefront. And so, uh, so sometimes when people are really searching, looking for God, they come to church and they get a revelation of themselves. And then, eventually in church, they get a revelation of God and what He can do for them. And when those two things come together, you have a winning combination. When you can look at yourself and listen say, I have failed, I have sinned, I have broken the law of God, and I'm not going to live that way, but I'm going to face my past, and I'm going to give my past to the Lord, and then I'm going to leave it in the past, and I'm going to live this new life that the Lord offers me in the Bible. And so he brings up her past. That's important. She had to deal with that. And she, he wanted to get her to know, and she certainly did know this, that she had broken the law of God. She was a sinner. Uh, God can't fix something that's not broken. And everyone is broken. You know these scriptures as well as I do. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 3.10 says, there is none righteous. No, not one. That includes everyone. And so he gives her the solution for her brokenness. What is it? Living water. It's a gift. Verse number 10. It's a gift of God. 
living water. He says, just take a drink of this. And really what he is referring to is himself. Just take me in. Just accept me as your Savior. Just take a big drink and you will never thirst again. You won't have to go anywhere, look any farther. You will have found God in you. Just take a drink. You know, there is a nameless, unsatisfied longing in the human heart, isn't there? Uh, When people grow up to a certain age, they realize there's something missing in my life. Augustine, he has all the good quotes, by the way, said this, Our hearts being restless until they find their rest in God. There is this constant acquisition, constant looking for the fulfillment that we so crave and desire in our heart. We can't even put our finger on it. Uh, The living water is the spring out of which true worship develops. Now, what he did is he, he kind of stirred this all up in her mind. And look at verse number 20. Uh, she wants to find forgiveness. And when she wants to find forgiveness, she thinks about worship. Verse 20. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Uh, you know, when you take a big drink of Christ, then, then you are impelled to worship the Lord. We spend so much of our life worshipping other things in life. We bow down to them. We, spend, we put them up on the pedestal. But when you have Christ in your heart, there is this compulsion. There is this drive in you to worship the true and living God. And I believe this, that a person will never be as close to God as they are when they're worshiping the Lord. Uh, there is never as much fulfillment in life as that. But, but she had been taught what we have been taught, that you have to go to a certain place in order to worship God. Where do I go? Do I go to that church? Do I go to this church? Do I go down here to this meeting? Uh, do I follow this person? He said, listen, it's not there. Worship is not in a place. It's in your spirit. You don't have to go to a place to worship God. Look what he says in verse 23. But the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. He said it's not in Jerusalem. It's not Uh, Up here in Samaria, Uh, he's looking for true worshipers and worshipers who will worship him in their spirit. Uh, I was talking to a person the other day and I said, listen, what I'm talking to you is not about church. And he says, oh, that's a good thing. Keep talking. He didn't want to talk about church. And uh, when you talk about worship, you don't have to talk about church right away. Uh, You have to talk about taking that big drink of water first that satisfies your soul. And then you have a desire then to worship God. And then God will lead you to the place, the church, the building of the people that God wants you to be a part of. And there you can worship. But, you know, just figure it out this way. You know, when you come to church and we and, you know, I saw some of our people in their Sunday school classes this morning. And, you know, I consider that all in some variation uh, a means of worship. We are submitting ourselves to the Word of God. So that's worship. And we come into church and we sing a few songs and we try to do our best to keep our mind on the Lord. And it's hard to do, isn't it? Because we saw a sunny day out there. You know, it's harder then. 
and, uh, and then, and it, but it's so minuscule in the church environment. But just think of all the time you have throughout the week. You know, all the time you have at home or at work or on the way to work or at home to really connect with God in your spirit. Yeah. That's the real thing. And then when you, if you practice that, when you come to church, then it's just so much easier for you to get in the groove because you've had a lot of practice throughout the week. And so he says to her, listen, it's not in this mountain, verse 21, or Jerusalem that you worship the Father, but you have to worship him in spirit and in truth. Worship is not about a place, but it's about our heart. Well, uh, one last thing I want to show you this morning. Look at verse 28. The woman was so excited, she left her water pot and went her way into the city and said to the men, Come see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Can you imagine that? Probably her family was back waiting for the water and she got home and saw, saw her coming and she didn't have her water pot. She's lost her mind. Dementia set in, something like that. And they said, where have you been? Where's the water? It's like you go into the grocery store and coming home and said, now, where's the groceries? Uh, where have you been? She forgot all about why she came. Because she had encountered the Lord there at the well. Uh, she had a new vision. She headed out that morning and she never dreamt what could happen to her that day. But when the Lord met her at the well, things changed. Because he looked at her as a person who had value. And a person that there was hope for. And he offered to her the greatest gift. Living water. Take a big drink. Maybe you're here today and you've never taken a drink. You've never taken Christ in. I want to encourage you to make this your day. Take a big drink. Take a full drink. And then there will be this desire in your heart to not worship your hobbies or other things in your life, but to truly worship the Lord. Because, listen, He's the only one worthy of worship. Let's bow our heads in prayer. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed this morning, I, I wonder if you're here and you, you've never uh, taken Christ in. Well, first of all, I want you to face your past and realize that the reason why you haven't taken Christ in is because you need Him so. You're lost. You're a sinner. And your sin has separated you from Him. But He's willing to forgive you. He's willing to forgive you if you just ask Him. Because He's the only one who can. The church can't forgive you of your sin. Your Christian friends can't forgive you. He's the only one. But I'll tell you what. He just waits with an open arms today for you to come to Him and say, Lord, forgive me. I'm separated from you and I know it. And so as we wait upon the Lord before we sing our invitation, if there's one in our church today who's ready to make this decision for Christ to be forgiven, I'd like to invite you to do that right now. Face your past. Say, Lord, I know I'm lost. There's no doubt about it. I know that you're the only one who can save me. Forgive me, Lord. Come into my heart. I want to drink 
from a well that brings everlasting life. And right now, I'm trusting you as my Lord and Savior. And I want to follow you, Lord. I want to be a disciple. Count me in. Sign me up. Maybe you're here today and maybe a long time ago in your life you made that decision that somehow along the road you got sidetracked and it's so easy to do. I'd like to invite you today to come back to Christ. Oh Lord, I want to be your follower. Thank you for forgiving me. Dear Lord, as we sing the invitation today, we pray that you will move among us. Lord, bless us. If We pray that you'll pour down your spirit upon us as we sing to you in this closing song. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand